Hello there, and welcome to this week's episode of Angle on Producers, the show where I shine a light on producers from all corners of the entertainment industry to understand who they are, what they do, and why they do what they do. As always, I'm your host and fellow producer, Carolina Gropa. Thanks for being here, for tuning in, and for, yeah, doing this life thing with me. I know I say that all the time, but I mean it. Speaking of life, last week I hinted at a new adventure I'm embarking on, well, have already embarked on, and I am so excited to share with you guys. I am officially the executive in charge of production at Issa Rae's Color Creative. It's a management and production company formed by Issa and Denise Davis in 2014. Yes, the same Denise who was one of my early podcasts. If you haven't checked out her episode, please do. She's amazing. The company is dedicated to supporting diverse creators and producing inclusive content with a mission to increase opportunities for underrepresented groups like women and minority talent. And if you listen to the show and know anything about me, well, then you know that I'm all about that. Like inclusion and diversity are basically my love language. So it's truly an honor to lend my talents to a company that is so aligned with my own goals. It's a really cool story of how this opportunity came into my life. Um, I wasn't really looking. So I'm going to do a special mini-sode for y'all with a full scoop. Needless to say, I am elated for this new chapter alongside Issa, Denise, and the very fierce Talitha Watkins, who is the president of Color Creative. But enough about me. This week's guest is truly, truly remarkable. I was so excited when my writer friend, Bashir Gavrielle, who is currently a staff writer on one of her shows, put her on my radar. He sang her praises and boy, oh boy, does she deliver. In 2009, she quit Hollywood. She hung up her hat and spent a decade in leadership positions in various industries outside of the business. In the fall of 2019, her brother Patrick was inundated with projects for him and for the many talented writers he championed with his overall deal at UCP, Universal Content Productions. Naturally, he called up Kelly, and naturally, she said yes. Two years later, and they created the hit peacock drama Dr. Death, starring Joshua Jackson, and are in the middle of production on the true crime limited series The Girl from Plainville, starring Elle Fanning. Like I said, pretty remarkable. So this week, we discuss the parallels between production and the writer's process, why producing is age agnostic, and re-entering Hollywood in her 40s. So without further ado, here's Kelly. I'm so excited to meet you via Zoom I face. I know. I know Bash texted this morning and was like, today's the day. I have to share with you this gift that he sent me. He was like, this is Kelly analyzing story and character, and it's just basically a frame from a beautiful mind <laughs> with all of the all of the things <laughs> he was like Kelly is like the only producer I've ever met who gives notes like this like she's like I don't understand like her brain or where she's been but it's truly exceptional that's very very sweet first question I have for you is how do you say your last name funk not arrested funk. okay yeah it's not funk okay I was I was not like funk <laughs> And, and it's not funky. We live in Harlem and I'll go to CVS and they'll be like, you know, the wart cream for Mrs. Funky. And I'm like, great. Thank you. Funk. So Kelly much. Funk. Thank you so much. Yes. You got it. Just funk. I just would love for you to take us to the beginning of your journey, how you discovered producing and that this was a path one could take because what's fascinating about you is you've had such a vast path, right, to get you where you are today. And so tell us all about it. Yeah. 
So I, I mean, I think that like others, I didn't, I didn't want to start off wanting to be a producer. So in third grade, I saw Sophie's Choice in the theaters. So any of your in third grade, yes, any of your guests that would okay. like to do the math on that, yes, I'm very old, and I remember falling in love um, with this idea that there was a medium that could have people stop and think at the way that particular film did. And then, and I thought I wanted to be an actress and. You know, I should have taken my cues in eighth grade. I only played boy roles. I was like Peter Pan. I was Jesus Christ and Godspell. And but I kept going. And then in college, I well, interestingly enough, in high school, I went to an all-girls high school, and there was a nun there. And when we were talking about you know counseling or your future vocation, I had said, you know, I want to, I want to go to theater film program. I want to be an actress. And she said, you know, well, Mm. have you thought about that as an avocation, not a vocation? And what else are you good at? And so my actual major is I have a bachelor's of science in organizational psychology Wow, with a focus on film sets. That's the best training for a producer I've ever heard. Right. And all of my friends left college and went on to like Bain and McKenzie. They were all consultants. And thankfully the Dean of our school was a tiny little school and this larger school was like a film buff. And he said, I think this is really cool. Mm -hmm. I think this is really interesting because if you think about a film set, right, that environment, that work environment is not set up. Um, It's not actually conducive to your traditional leadership skills, right? You don't have any of the normal incentives and everybody has to contextualize this, right? This was the early nineties. This is way before the big economy and our wonderful Gen Zers who are out there doing it on their own in 1990, 91, 92, you went and you work for a company still, right? So you would study either airplane pilots, because if you think about it, and a lot of people don't know this and it might freak them out, but pilots and, and flight attendants meet for the first time on the flight. Most of them have never worked together before. It is this vast hub that places them together depending on their schedules, et cetera. So, and so if you think about it, all of these OB, you know, scientists were studying either airlines or I was like, hey, well, a film set is kind of like that because everyone has this very distinct, unique set of skills. They all ultimately are coming together mm-hmm. to do something and accomplish something for a finite period of time. They know worse comes to worse. They will potentially never have to work again. Right. And so it's just about that collective mindset of <laughs> how do we get to the end of the experience if it's not a good experience? And my question always in these crazy white papers was like, well, how could you make a film set a good experience? Yeah. And so I was studying that. And I also was realizing that I was not meant to be an actress in the theater program. And, but I realized that I was the person that everyone was coming to, to figure out how to make it work. Right. And at the time you were studying this concept before you actually got to physically do it yourself. Yeah. What were some of the conceptions that you had of what you thought it was going to be versus how the reality unfolded later on? I had zero conceptions. Yeah. (laughs) I, I arrived at producing because of either the positive or negative advice of people that I trusted that sent me down different Plinko lanes, um, but ultimately came to this realization that I really enjoyed working with creative people, helping them to accomplish a vision. And when you look at my wackadoodle career, that actually has been the hallmark of of everything that I've done. So (laughs) even when I was working in national politics, in essence, I was working for a US Senate candidate who had a vision of what she wanted to accomplish. And it was my job to help figure out how to get her there, right? 
even when I was working at Philo leading a marketing team, we started that with our hiring our creatives first. And I was told by my team, folks that have worked in other more traditional marketing departments, that it was sometimes frustrating to work for me because we got behind the creative vision. There was a choice between what the creatives wanted and what the business wanted. I always went with the creatives and that came from sort of my upbringing. Um, But I had no idea what I was getting into when I started interning two days after college for, for this film producer, Carrie Woods. So it was very much just learning as I went. Yeah. And again, learning positives and negatives of, of what I wanted to ultimately specialize in, yeah. which at 50 is really focused hundred percent on development. Like I don't need to be in on set. I actually, it's not that I don't love set. I've done set. Um, but my favorite place to be is with the writer rolling up my sleeves and holding up that mirror and going, hey, is this what you mean to be putting on the page? And if it is, great, but here's the confusion. And if it isn't, then how do we get to that that point? And I'm very grateful to my brother who also recognized when he invited me to come back and work in the industry. And we talked about sort of the lay of the land. He said, look, you will always be president over all of it because I know you can guide it. But he said, the thing, the maypole that I need you to, to plant for us is going to be working with our writers and that early sort of part of the process. And how much time did it take you to figure out that that was the part of the process you wanted to like sink your teeth into? The second go around. So I, so I worked <laughs> for Carrie Woods for four years. and As an assistant, yeah. A, as an assistant, as mm-hmm. a director of development, and then as a VP of development. So I worked my way up through four years and I oversaw my first film, when I was 24, it was a film called Gummo for Harmony Corinne at Fine Line. But over that four-year period, Carrie's writers, they were all first-time writers. And those first-time writers were, you know, Alexander Payne and Kevin Williamson and Doug Lyman and John Favreau, Harmony Corinne, Larry Clark, Scott Rosenberg, Gary Fleeter. It was James Mangold's second film, Night Shyamalan's first film. So I feel like I had four years of this crazy just dunking into yeah, got writers. Your PhD. Oh my God. Right. Each of yeah. them were so clear in their, in their visions. And even though none of their first films were successful at all. And I, I mean, maybe John and Doug would take umbrage at that because I think swingers actually ended up with a very sort of ardent fan base right. and stream obviously for Kevin yeah. Williamson did very, very well. But, you know, Al, I mean, a lot of people haven't seen Alexander's first film, Citizen Ruth, and it's, it, but all you have to do is watch it and see everything that Alexander was going to be. So a lot of people haven't seen, you know, things to do in Denver when you're dead, which was Scott Rosenberg's first film. But you see all of Scott in there. It's just waiting to compound. So I think that the seeds were planted there. And then when I went and started my own, unsuccessfully started my own film production company the second time, that's all I wanted to do. Right. When I would have to do budgets for things and I'd be like, oh, hey, <laughs> but anytime I had writers, right. I have a, a good, good friend, John Hartmere, who um, wrote The Upside and has written extensively for Broadway. You know, he gave a toast at our rehearsal dinner and he was like, you know, the thing about Kelly was she would be like at your front door. You'd be like, what time do you want to do the meeting? And she's like, I'm here. I'm ready to do the meeting. <laughs> and that was in that phase that really cemented that that was my favorite part of the process. Yeah. You had these this four-year stint with with Carrie Woods. You learn basically all of the things, this very deep dive. Yep, learned a lot. Then you decide to go on your own. No, then I did four years for a startup um, interior design and furniture company. Okay, so talk about that. Like, where did that 
life joys come in because it seems like after that experience yeah. right many would say wow kelly's on her way yeah. she, she can do whatever she wants from here um so the honest answer is that that carrie was working for um miramax that was his deal and he and harvey had had a horrible falling out i'm not telling turns carrie has you know talked about this in the press um and I was in New York and New York was a very small town in 1996 and there weren't a lot of places to go to. And I felt incredibly loyal to Carrie. Um, And the most obvious place to go would have been to have gone and worked for Miramax because I had spent my four years there as well. And I didn't feel comfortable sort of knocking on that door and compounding that I had made no money. I mean, literally, right. I mean, we all know, right. You make no money as an assistant and you make no money as, you know, in those days there was like no money period. And my family was a working class family. And so I was like in debt and feeling guilty and was like, okay, well maybe you're going to take a time out (laughs) and go earn some money in another field that will still keep you learning. And to me, I wanted to learn the other side. I wanted to learn the business side. And so I took this director of operations job for this startup company that was angel funded by the founder of J. Crew, um, and angel funded by a couple of other private, you know, New York families. And that's when I learned, you know, how to hire accountants, how to hire a PR firm, how to hire, you know, negotiate a lease, how to start IT. And so I, because I had always had a vision that I wanted to have a company someday. And so this sort of felt like my MBA without paying for it. I think a lot of people were very surprised because I just overseen my first film. I will say there was a lot of Catholic guilt in there that felt (laughs) more loyal to this guy that I wasn't going to work for anymore than my own career. Um, But in the everything comes full circle, I mean, there's zero reason why my brother came back to me at 48 when his company was starting to succeed and said, why don't you come work for me? You've been out of the game for 12 years. And I attribute that to his loyalty. So I think karmically things do somehow come back to you, right? Yeah. And like if you had not had that experience, right, who knows if you would have felt as ready to step into that role after being out of the scene, so to speak, for 12 years, though, I always wonder because a lot of producers I know say, oh, you know, if I could do anything else, I would, because what we do is so hard. The independent side of it is so hard, but I don't know what how I transfer my skills to another industry. And that is something that comes up often when I'm like, you know, drinking too much wine with having one of those. <laughs> like, why are, why are we doing this with our lives? This is terrible. Um, and it just, I always feel like, yeah, it's super transferable, but then I can never think of what industries exactly it would be transferable to. But it sounds like you found those parallels, which is interesting. I always say this to our interns, right? Figure out what your skill set is first. Don't figure out what your industry is first. And that was one of those crazy things that that Cornell taught me in that organizational behavior program, right? Mm -hmm. When you go and you become a leader of people, the first thing you've got to ask yourself is what's their skill set that they're good at? And then how do you take those skills and apply it best within your team? So I always approached my career from the standpoint of, I think I have this skill set, right? I think I'm very good at working with creatives. I think that I enjoy right brain, left brain in terms of, I, I'm a generalist in the finest sense of the word. And I can, and I know just enough to be able to lead creatively and to lead from a business side. I also know just enough to know when I don't know enough, which is very important. I love startup environments. 
if you look at all the things that I've worked in, right? I worked at a startup retail furniture company. When you work for a Senate candidate that has never run for Senate before, you're in a startup environment. Yeah. And Fila, even though it was a 100-year-old company when I started there, they had been through a massive dismantling of their U.S. operations. They'd almost gone bankrupt. So I used to joke that the marketing team was this like startup group in this 100-year-old company. And we treated it like that. Like that's how we built it was sort of that thought process. Yeah. So I kind of knew what I was good at. And then I would go and sort of look, okay, how can I apply there? So I think that producers have to recognize that you do have a completely fungible skill set, 100%. You just have to figure out how to frame it and recognize that you are a content creator in essence, Mm. especially now. I mean, it was harder in the 90s and early 2000s. It is today when everyone's a content creator, quite frankly. Right. So you have to look, when you think about who's creating content in Google and Facebook and Snapchat, I mean, all of those folks have teams. You know, and you look at the social media agencies that are out there, right? Right. They would give their IT to have someone in the entertainment industry and be able to bring that skill set, you know, over. Right. Right. I mean, like I, I throw out Vayner Media because I'm a huge fan of Gary, Gary Vayner's. Yeah. He's been at it, gosh, since Twitter began. I feel like he's been around. 100%. Yeah. Right. And look at a guy who completely figured out and knew what his skill set was, applied it to wines and then applied it to building a social media empire. But in Long Island City, they have this huge, I mean, it's all it's production studios for them to create social media content for their clients. So I think if you start to think about that and then you are allow yourself to step out of the entertainment industry and you think of yourself as a producer of content, it becomes a lot easier Mm. one-to-one. And so how would you define a producer then? I think it depends on whether you're looking at pure production skills, right? So if you're looking at those great line producers and UPMs who go out there and actually make production happen. And then you look at those, you know, I mean, I am a non-writing producer. I love that title. That title wasn't here 12 years ago when Patrick and I first started. I think that's such a great title in TV because guess what? You're not out there producing the show. You're not the showrunner, but there is a role for you in that process of you know, of bridging all of those different worlds. So, but I do ultimately believe if we are not in physical production and we're defining it, that a producer is a hundred percent responsible for bridging, for helping the creative to realize their vision to the best of their ability. And if you don't define creative as a director or a writer, and you think of it as a Senate candidate or creative directors within your marketing department, or a guy who's decided that he wants to build a furniture company, those creators and those creatives, you're going to you're going to approach them with the same set of skills. There's an interesting debate. I mean, I, I obviously I came up on the indie side. I came up physically producing and so yep. that is where my skill set lies and I think there's a lot of contention nowadays because you'll look at a credit. Uh, television is a completely different world, but in the film space, you know, you look at it at an IMDb and there's like 55 executive producers and 18 producers and you're like wow, like who made this movie? Like who actually physically made it? And it's such an interesting debate of like, 
you can't, you couldn't have gotten it without the development exec that found it, you know, that found the project and developed it and then got the financier. Like everybody has an importance at every step of the stage. But when it's all said and done, if you had to like really boil it to its most basic, you know, the same way that if you were to make a movie and you only had the limited resources, what is the yeah. bare bones that you need? And you need a camera, you need sound, you need some lights, you need an actor. And that's, that's it. If you have yeah. those four things, you can make a movie pretty much. And I, and I think the producer who has the physical experience, I always say is, is the person ultimately that will continue having the job. Yep. And I, and I get a lot of people coming up to me being like, Oh, I want to be a creative producer, which is so specific. And I think, <laughs> wow, that sounds like fun. But in my world, it's not that that is not a, a, an impressive or important title, but that is typically a development executive, right? Correct. I always tell anyone who listens and asks for my advice, it's go learn how to make the thing. Even yep. if you realize it's not for you, Correct. like why would you not want to understand every part of that process, right? And and the, the, the producer umbrella, I feel like since the pro- a producer existed has been so diluted into these compartmentalized jobs that yeah. yes, it's great. It's created a lot more jobs for others. But I also think it, it does devalue the title in the film space. I know television is a lot more rigid with all of this, but it is a writer's medium. So a non-writing producer in television, that's gold, you know. The brilliance of working for Kerry Woods and the president of his company at the time, Kathy Conrad, was they were old school producers. They yeah. found the project, they developed the material, they hired the line producer, they were on set every single day, they were hiring the casting director, they were putting together the cast, you know, they they were least vocal in post, that was the part that I would see them least vocal in, but damn it all the hell if they weren't back rolling up their sleeves during the marketing, right? And like, yeah. I'm an assistant and I'm watching Carrie get President Clinton to wear a Rudy cap for a run you know, six days before it goes out. Right. So in film, I think there are those folks that, that stay with the whole thing from beginning to end. I think that then if you get down, but I'm so with you, I mean, that's why on Gummo, you know, I was on set every single day. I was, I wanted to deal with it all and God bless her, you know, Robin O'Hara and Scott McCauley, Robin has passed away. Scott is still here. You know, I, I was 24 years old. These guys had been producing film for years. And all of a sudden I'm the, you know, production executive. And I sat with them and said, I don't know my ass from my elbow. I said, and I, but all I want to do is just be like, I want to just follow you like a shadow because the only way I'm ever going to be able to hope to have a sense of understanding this is if I actually get to roll up my sleeves and do it. And then I got to do it again on shrink. And then I got to do it again in TV on Life on Mars. But again, in that title doesn't matter. You know, I had I had just associate produced this film Shrink. And then I went to Scott Rosenberg because I knew I wanted to get into TV. And I was like, can I be the assistant to the producing director? And he's like, what are you talking about? You just like, and I was like, I don't know my ass or my elbow. Again, like I yeah. my ass or my elbow about TV production. So that like, Give me the producing director. Let me be his assistant. I'll get to see everything and I'll get to learn everything again. Yeah. That humility is very important. What you just touched upon. I think that part is really, really important. And by the way, if you're going to show up on set and you don't know anything, for the love of God, like don't sit in the chair with the, (laughs) be careful. Don't sit in the chair with the coffee and yeah, oof, it's just like a whole it's a whole thing. But you know, I've I've had conversations in, in private with a lot of um, executives, 
creative producers, covering producers who come to set and they tell me how much anxiety they feel because they're coming to set to report back to their bosses about how it's going. And they have no idea because they don't understand what what it would feel like and look like if it was a disaster versus if it's going well. And sometimes you honestly can't tell. Yeah. Because it's chaos, right? Yeah. Set is chaos. And so and in the same way, everyone looks at that person and goes, oh, the suits are on set. The big boss right. is on set. And everybody right. gets like, ner- it's like a two-way street, you know? Everyone's right. nervous thinking this person's out there like sniffing out what they're doing. Yet oftentimes it seems like those people, depending on the path they've come up, don't really know. And I wish there, that there was a little more... Um, you know, it's just my wishful thinking of like Kumbaya Hollywood, that people could just be a little bit more more honest about what, because so much of what we, we do is learned. Yeah. I wish that there was a little bit more of that um, humility to pull the line producer aside and say, hey, like, oh, this is my first time covering set. Like, what should I know? What should I look for? How do I help you? How do I support you? Are you kidding me? Like, who doesn't want, who, regardless of your title, who doesn't want to be met with that kind of um, approach to the work. Right. Such a joy then to say, oh my God, of course, like, let me show you the ropes. Like, let me explain to you yeah. why this is good, why this is bad, et cetera. So, you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's a fundamental, right? And I agree with you. And I, and I say to young people all the time in your twenties, if you think you want to be a producer, you got to do a couple of years on a quote unquote, creative producer's desk, because if you don't know how to identify the material, if you don't understand how to take it from podcast to shooting script, right? You're going to have a problem. And then take a couple of years and go back down that ladder again and go back out and work for a a line producer, go work for a physical producer, go, go get the 86,000 coffees. At least you understand what they mean when they say, could you grab the pink call sheet? Right. Could you grab an apple box? (laughs) Right. Like, I mean, you know how many times I've, you've been on set with someone where they're like, you know, watch out for the apple box and you see them they don't even know what the hell you're talking about. And the the other thing I'll, I'll I'll mention that I've learned is it is much easier to jump the fence into the creative side of producing if you've come up on the physical side. If you've come up line producing, understanding yep. set, you can go, oh, I've done this for a decade. I now want to hop over here. But yep. if you've come up the other way, a lot harder. you're not going to, yeah. you'd have to start at the bottom. And no one's going to do that when they've spent, you know, a decade forming a career in relationships as, as a development exec. And so I, I think that's like sage advice. And I never thought there was a difference. I just thought, well, you just do it all because I was doing it all for like short films and all of that. Right. But I would have gone and like worked at an agency for a year and just gotten like an understanding of what that world is. Yeah. But I knew even then it was never going to be my world. But I right. just wish I could have had that nugget. A hundred percent. And it also gives you respect for those writers that are running around, right? I mean, I when I spend time talking to writers, I talk about the tremendous respect that I have for someone that sits staring at a blinking cursor all day. And yeah. I think that, you know, we get to that place of physical production where there's such a specific job that needs to be done, right? Yeah. We have, we have a ticking clock. We have money. We have resources that are dwindling, including sunlight by every minute, right? But yeah. if you've ever spent time with a writer, and realize what they go through that process. Yeah. I think it also helps you maybe not feel like they're being quite so precious about their product because yeah. there there is a lot there that comes out of that imagination. At the end of the day, none of that matters. All that work, all that time, all that planning, all that money if if the yeah. script 
isn't there, (laughs) honestly. And if the acting isn't going to be there, you know it when you're watching Monitor and you're like, oof, this isn't working, you know? And you look around and you're like, oh my God, all these people, all this planning, all, you know. I love that you said, because Patrick will talk about the fact, like with Dr. Death, that he would sit on set and you know, you hear those, I mean, they hear those voices in their heads all day long, right? It's just there and it's, and it's wonderful. Um, And, you know, and he, I mean, I have the privilege of when we're, when we're in a writer's room and we're not in COVID, I get to sit. Sometimes I just sit on his couch in his office, quite frankly, because again, we're a pretty low, low, low lo-fi production company, but I'll like, he'll be talking to himself. He'll be like, but you know, what do you mean, Bob? You know, and like he's he's got the voices. But he was talking yeah. about this one moment um, that he was very nervous about in one of the episodes of Doctor Death, and he was sitting on set and he was watching the crew, and um, and he could see like he could see the crew like they were like tearing up like a little bit, right? Like he could just see that they had somehow they had been emotionally moved by the scene, and he was like. I, I breathed a little bit of a sigh of relief today because for myself, this was for him, it was such a pivotal scene in the arc of the series that yeah. that scene working with the crew was so important. And, and he said, I knew if the crew didn't respond to it, we were probably screwed <laughs> like for the whole show. And, yeah. but he's like, but these folks who have so many other jobs to do, who, have so, who aren't worried about the words there was one moment where I could just see sort of kind of everybody stopped and they listened to what the actors were doing. And he's like, and then I kind of, I was like, okay, this is going to be okay. It was real. it was a really interesting just yeah. sort of side thing that he threw out to me. Um, but it, it speaks to the fact that crew knows yeah. the crew. Yeah. If you want to ask anybody if a show is going to do well or not, just ask. Well, if we forget that the crews are also humans, and oftentimes the people that are work crew jobs are also film lovers for the most part. They got into it because they wanted to help bring stories to life, right? And then they found out that great, an electrician is like their way in. That's what they're going to do. But it's true. Like you can tell, you can feel it because the crew is either present with the work or they're not. And we had a really incredible experience on Honk where we were filming the climax of the movie. And it's a mockumentary, so the operators are very involved in the scene. In fact, you know, they are in the world. They're characters in the world. We just never really see them. We see them a few times in the film. Regina Hall, which just, she's amazing. (laughs) We had operators had to, like, put their cameras down and, like, take a, they had to go take a moment for themselves because they were so invested in her journey and in what happens in that moment. And that's when, you know, as a producer, to your point, you're like, this is something, you know, it's part of why I love independent film so much, because to your point, you are a part of a mini startup for those 30 days, you know, you're, you're really creating art in the smallest, most contained way. And if everybody's on board for that type of experience, I do think you get something really special. And, and I've, I've said this a million times on the podcast, and I truly believe that that fabric gets captured on the screen. It's really magical when it happens. I want to shift gears a little bit because we talked a little, you hinted a little bit about, um, you know, money and growing up with not a lot of money and, and how many people who find themselves attracted to this industry kind of seem to come from humble, humble means and then find their footing. And so I'm curious, you know, now that you've been with the company since how long now have you been? Two years. We're not even two years. Only two years. Yeah, we're, we're coming up on the second year, December 3rd. But obviously you're, you know, a, a fully formed woman who's yes. gone through a lot of life experiences at this point. So you're not, you know, I think it'd be very different if you were 
30 years old stepping into this role versus where you are now. And that's the gift of time and wisdom. But one of the things I really like to talk about on the show is is the challenges, right? And the difficult times and how you navigate them. I talk a lot about this sense of transparency and how me coming up, I I had to do a lot of work through yoga and therapy to not attach my self-worth to the work, especially as an independent freelance person where if I wasn't working and, and Hollywood makes you feel that way, if you're not working, then you don't matter, you don't exist. Um, and so having navigated a lot of my own ups and downs and depression, frankly, through it, I'm, I'm curious if what parts of your journey, maybe you have had these like super low points and how you've navigated them, right? How you transcend, how you grow out of it. I'm super, first of all, I'm super happy to be transparent. I, so um, I will be, let's be very, very blunt. If my, if Patrick hadn't invited me back to the industry, I would have left in 2007. And regardless, if he was on a third bucket on this screen, right, he would be like, oh, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is he had the fortitude to stick with this for 12 more years and keep going. Because I gave up, right? At 37, I, I was 37 years old. We were going into the writer strike in 2007. Mm-hmm. I'd spent the last year living out of my car. Um, and I had given myself a statute of limitations. I came to I came back to Hollywood at 30, right? So I'd done the four years with Carrie. I did the four years for the startup. And I came back at 30 and said, okay, I'm going to give myself seven years. And if I haven't accomplished it in seven years, then... Clearly, this isn't meant to be. For you at that time, what was accomplishing it? What was the it? Yeah. To me, it was winning an award. <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't financially driven. It was accolades, recognition. It was accolades. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And obviously, in tandem, if you're winning an award, you're probably making money. But like, I got to the seventh year and I was like, I don't think this was meant for me, truthfully. And, and I, and it was so interesting because there were other writers, my, my brother included, although, you know, he also got decimated by the writer strike in 2007. He had, we had like seven or eight projects that were at all different studios and like all on the cusp. And the first thing they do during the writer strike is just like, send you the letter saying, thanks, but no thanks. Right. We don't need you anymore. Mm. And we have all of those letters. And when things get like, you know, now we're like, well, look at those letters because they're, those are sad letters to get. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. But, um, but I was 37. I was the oldest in our family. You know, I went to Cornell and every, I wasn't married. I had no children everywhere. I looked, I had friends that were, you know, they had bought homes, they had children in kindergarten and here I was still trying to do it. Mm. Um, and so I took the writer strike as a sign from God that it was time to go. And I did go, um, you know, I came back quickly to do shrink because again, I couldn't let it go. Right. So I came back to associate produce shrink. I came back to work on life on Mars. And then my husband proposed to me in 2009 and I was 38. Right. And I was like, okay, I am going to put that chapter of my life to bed. And I remember thinking as I literally rounded the corner of the church, when I was going to get married. Like, that's it. Like this, this part of my life is closed. And I was embracing this new chapter. And I would keep reading scripts from writers that I was really close to. Although it got to a place and to Patrick's credit, you know, Patrick would send me every single project. Um, 
And my youngest brother, who's also a writer, he would send me his projects. Um, and a lot of times I couldn't read them. I couldn't open them because it was hard. It, you know, it was like, I was so happy with the life choice, but I had left a part of my heart there. Right. And it wasn't that I felt like I hadn't done everything I could like, right. There were writers that were succeeding. You know, I have a very good friend who is a, you know, New York times and LA times bestselling author. I'd helped him get his first book published. You know, there, like there was success, but it wasn't, there was success for others. And so I was like, maybe I was here to be a vessel for others for that period of time. And I'm really cool with that. Yeah. The honest answer is I gave up. I gave up at 37 and didn't try to recreate, just sort of put it to bed. And in a million years, I never thought I was coming, honestly, never thought I was coming back. Um, And so the debt of gratitude that I have to my brother for coming back and saying, you know, let's finish that thing that we started in 2004. Um, You know, I will never be able to be, uh, there there will never be enough gratitude that I can express to him. Um, But I think the reality is, is it's hard (laughs) and it's hard. You know, I am not going to sit and say to anyone, it's easy. It's not. Um, But hopefully you have peace when you close that door. And I think I had like 98% peace when I closed that door. Yeah. And so if you are going to step out, then I would just say, you know, just go when you've left it all on the mat. Like I really, I felt like there was nothing else that I could have done. And so, yeah, honestly, I don't know if I would have the pleasure of sitting with you or having, you know, had the chance to meet Bash in the last 18 months or so, if someone else hadn't had more faith in helping me to finish, finish that journey. Everybody knows when it's their time to go. And that's all, right? If you don't make it, however you define it, you do know when it's your, you do know when it's your yeah. time to go. And interestingly enough, I never wanted to be an executive. I always wanted to be a producer. Yeah. Right. I didn't want to be a manager. I always like that was once I figured it out, that was, that was my thing. Which is interesting. Cause like nowadays it feels like, yeah, like managers are producers on their clients projects, you know, and it's like yeah. important. Yes. Yeah. They developed it to an extent, but I, I don't know. I just think that there should be a different delineation of what that is. It's not that they don't matter to the process, but it just really devalues the people that commit to that life, which is a very hard life, you know? Yes. And I think that though there is a reason why the PGA ultimately decided that only three people can get nominated for an Academy Award. Yeah. And that the and that those folks that are rolling up their sleeves and doing it from beginning to end. Those are the folks that get the PGA at the end of their, at the end of their name. And that all of those producers, they they have to give credit where credit is. Where it's due. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Patrick and I are pretty clear on that. I mean, I, uh, we are very clear. The only stuff that I would ever ask for producer credit on in the company is stuff that I have found, developed, set up, and then seen all the way throughout. So the likelihood that I will ever actually end up with a producer credit on something for Littleton Road is pro is m- maybe smaller just because Patrick does a lot of it. Like, I don't want to, I'm not going to tack along in his ride. Like that's it. He's doing all the hard work, right? Like, yeah. Like, yeah. So I do agree with you on the value of, of that credit and those, and those folks. Although I would say every person along the way will tell you, well, you wouldn't have gotten X without Y and you wouldn't have gotten Y without C. Right. But that's why the folks that do the whole thing from like getting that script on a Friday night and reading it and fighting for it and setting it up and 
finding that casting director and finding the line producer and right. Those peeps are the ones that, you know, those are the, peeps. They're, they're the ones that you stand up and say, thank you. Thank you for that award. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. And you're one of those who are one of those. It's so clear. Oh, so thank you. Just yeah. hang in there. It'll, it'll, oh, gosh, yeah. one form I, or another. I'm working towards it. I'm, I'm still here. This will be my 16th year in LA. So I'm, you know, I feel very blessed that I, I think at every turning point in my career, when I've been in those stages of like, maybe this isn't for me, or yeah. I'm in over my head or what business, all of that imposter syndrome, you know, monologue, there's always been some like nudge from the universe, from God, from whoever. And then there's always gently shifting me in the directions and where I'm supposed to be, frankly. And every time it sounds silly, but it's true. Like every time I've just trusted that, yeah. Despite my own, like, you know, I'm a producer, I love to control things. Every time I've just tried to let go and just try to not produce my own life and just let things happen and lean in, it, it's always led me to a really beautiful place. And I always come out the other side being like, you know, like at the Garden of Eden, like I had no idea this was here, how cool. And so I feel really so much gratitude that that has there's been this like invisible hand guiding that I feel indebted to help others. Um find even if it's just a little bit of um sort of motivation to keep going when it does get tough because it's mostly tough you know and i think everybody loves to there's the highlight reel and there's the awards all the accolades all that stuff that's awesome to get but no one sees or cares about all the all the all the stuff behind the scenes which i find so funny because yes. in our business it's like we all know how hard it is but then we're very quick to forget it when we watch someone else be up there you know getting their award we like somehow we just go into this like yeah. we black out temporarily and forget that like oh yeah that took them 17 years to do that you know like queen's gamut like wow you know all of this stuff and um i'm definitely guilty of it no matter how how high i, I rise in my own career but you know i think it's so funny because i well it's not funny but i i always had this thought of like oh when you get to this level, then everything must be easier. When you get to have a first look deal, yep. this must happen. When you win an award, when you get to be making you know quality television with incredible actors, like then this must happen. And it, I don't know if if that is true. Curious, do you feel like where you are now with your company and your career is it easier? In what ways is it easier? But in what ways is it still struggle city? I don't think we're there yet. I appreciate the graciousness, but to your point. Right. Patrick decided to write in 2004 and it's 2021 and 17 years to getting his first show on the air. And that show is literally only 17 days old. Right. <laughs> Just landed on Peacock July 15th. Yeah. We are certainly blessed. Our, you know, our next project that Patrick is working on with Liz Hanna, their co-sharing together, start shooting in 16 days. Right. Yes. Um, so I do think that there is a critical mass where if you can just put one after the other, there's that sense of, right. If you can just do one after the other, mm -hmm. you then, it then does start to become easier. The easier is you become a known known. Now that also becomes the death of you. So, if, so we're so, we're always so focused on the journey up to the top of the mountain. But the reality is, is that once you and your company become a known known, then you either have to continue to perform at that level, which is why you look at Spielberg, you look at Imagine, right? You look at these producers, you know, you look at Plan B. I mean, I have just endless amounts of respect for Dee Dee Gardner and Jeremy Klein. I knew Dee Dee and I were assistants together yeah. in New York back in the day, right? And so you look at those companies that show up and every time they deliver 
on the promise of going up that hill, right? That's what I think the new pressure becomes Mm. is how do you continue to have audiences and the town not let them down on the trust that they place in you, if if that makes sense. And I think that the no known and the reason why, you know, the folks that fall off is because they, they, they either choose to opt out, right? They're done. They don't need to do it anymore. Or their no known becomes less desirable and they don't perform as much. So until people know who you are, you have the promise of what that is. And then on you, when you get on the other side of it, how do you, you're, it's no longer promise. People know what you do or you don't do. And then hopefully you continue to deliver good product. So I think mm. that's a little bit of what we're feeling right now. Well, we've done two crime shows back to back, right? We would love to do a non-third true crime show because that <laughs> isn't actually the brand, right? There are other things that we like to do, but guess what? We may not have that option. And so it's like, how do yeah. you play with those chessboard pieces to make sure that you're giving your company this opportunity to be the best version of itself? Yeah. So that's what I would say. I think there are different challenges becoming a known entity. As difficult as it is to be unknown, there are also challenges. Trust me, easier to be on this side of the hill than this side of the hill. Um, but it's a, but your screw ups are a lot more right. visible. Right. <laughs> when you get known, your learning curve kind of better be done a little bit because there's only so many chances you're going to get. Right. So many passes you get. So yeah. many passes you get. I had um a. I was a nanny for a pretty well-known actor when I was coming up in one of my many odd jobs. And he always used to say, you know, the industry tells you what it wants you to be. Mm. And he was good friends with Ben Stiller. And he used Ben Stiller as a perfect example that he sought out to be a dramatic actor. That's really what he wanted to do. He wanted to do serious, hearty character dramas. And it just wasn't hitting for him. And then the minute he did his first comedy, he blew up. And he was really grateful. This is him telling me, I don't know if this is what he still thinks or feels today. But at the time, he was telling me, you know, Ben has always been grateful for that, but he has now spent all this time trying to to go against that. And that's really what audiences want him to be doing. So which path do you choose? You know, yep. personal choice, I suppose, and there's no answer. But I think it's like, yeah. it's such a game, this industry, that makes no sense. It's hard to explain. But I think if you understand how to play the game and you use it to your advantage, not in a gross way, you can create a career that hopefully is is meaningful and then be lucky enough to to do a slight pivot and do something a little bit different um, that still fulfills you. So, you know, it's like no other industry in the world. And I say that as someone who's now worked in national politics, who's worked in retail, who's right, who worked for a, you know, global branded manufacturer. It's the most counterintuitive industry you could ever work in. It just is. And so the faith in yourself has got to be unwavering because there's no other industry in the world where you don't find one or two people that are going to try to help you succeed. And by that, I mean, like legitimately, like you're going to have a path, you're going to have a path forward. And in this industry, yeah, you, you get backers for sure if you're blessed, but it's a struggle. It's a struggle like no other industry I've, I've seen. How did you find your faith in yourself? Oh, I still don't think I have faith in myself. What? I, you know, it doesn't matter how, oh yeah, no. It doesn't, and I have way, I mean, I did seven years of therapy and I was finally like, all right, we're going to tap out on this, my friend. I was more reliant on what others thought than what I thought of myself. Mm. Um, mm. 
And I think that was probably how I got into my own way more than I should have. But yeah, no, I think I will say this. I at some at some point in my life, probably somewhere in my 40s, definitely when I was at Fila, I figured out that I was a really good number two. And that took the burden off of having to have faith in myself. I had to have faith in who I was picking to be the number one. But as soon as I was like, maybe you're not supposed to be the front man of the band, you're supposed to be the guy behind. Um, then I was able to very comfortably settle into that role and be the best version of it. Because again, ultimately I'm helping to, to reflect back somebody else's vision and accomplish it. So I don't think that I am a visionary, which I think that, uh, that a lot of producers are, I think maybe I just know how to pick visionaries and then go work for them. Yeah. So when you ask that question, I think that, I think that there is a difference there. Well, it's interesting because perception is, is, you know, our, our, our worst, our best friend and our worst enemy, because I perceive you, you don't feel this, but I perceive you as someone who seems to have faith in yourself. I perceive you as someone who seems to have withstood all of the things, whether through your own will or through your brother, through Patrick, you know, giving you the faith when you didn't have it in yourself. You know what I mean? Like in other people yeah. along your journey when you weren't ready for it. And I think it is such a wavering thing and it, it takes such maturity to have that. And I don't, I would venture to say most people don't really find that until they're much older in life, but there's got to be something else then, if not the faith, yeah. perhaps sheer ignorance that you can achieve something in this crazy ass business, right? Oh yeah. Like every producer tells me if I knew how hard it was going to be, like I never would have done it, <laughs> you know? You know, McManuses are nothing if not dumbasses. So for sure, <laughs> we fall right, right in that lane. Yeah. 150%. I'm right there. <laughs> so. Well, I mean, so how do you think that we, to, to wrap things up before we go into our lightning round, yes. um, how do you think that we create and cultivate a, a next generation of people coming up under us, whatever age? I don't, I don't mean that to be like 18 year old starting. You could be 37 wanting to start. To me, it doesn't matter. Yep. Um, how do we create that so they can find the path maybe a little more quickly if that's their, what their journey is supposed to be and have a little bit more of that self-confidence, that faith in themselves? Yep. I, th I think especially producers, especially people who are passionate yeah. about the vision who actually want to be the people doing the, this grueling work behind the scenes. So, um, so we've had the, my first, so I, right. I graduated May, 1993 and May, 1994, I started an intern program for Carrie and I've had an intern program pretty much nonstop for the last 30 summers across all, all the industries that I've worked in. We didn't do it in the furniture company, um, but pretty much everything else we've had, we've had interns. And I believe very strongly in that as a safe place um, for folks at the beginning of their career. Again, I don't want to say young people because we've had, you know, interns in their 30s who have had career changes and yeah. decided, like, this is what I want to do. I do believe very strongly in that as a safe opportunity for next gen producers to come in and see it all, right? Um, one of the ironies of COVID is that I feel like our virtual interns have seen more than maybe at any other time because literally they've been able to, they've been able to sit in on everything, right? Like, which right. has been phenomenal for them. Um, so I advocate heavily, if you think you want to be a producer, try and find, because a lot of production companies do actually have good intern programs. And a lot of the studios do as well. 
Um, And so, and again, I think I bring a bias because I started as an intern, but you know, you know, our intern, and obviously in the era of COVID, our interns don't get coffees. They don't get sandwiches. Like I'm very, even when we're in real life, I'm like, uh, 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 no, this is their, this is their time. This is their three months that they've got to just be able to learn. That's all I want them doing. Right. I just want them seeing it all and starting to get that sense to your point of what is this life going to look like? Um, because I think yeah. if we can be transparent about it with all of its joys and yes. all of its, you know, moments of abject horror and disillusion, um, <laughs> that that's going to, that's going to help them start to make good decisions. Yes. And by the way, bad internships treat, teach you as much as good internships. I hope you end up in a good internship, but, um, the bad ones are going to teach you about the type of human being you want to be. Mm, I agree. In the last yeah. four years, I feel like folks have turned a corner, certainly in the last two years in an exponential way. Yeah. Um, but let's be very clear. The bad ones are still out there. Um, and so, you know, you learn as much. I I had a non-intern, not an internship, but I worked for a real humdinger at one point and, uh, and just came away with so much from that experience uh, as a woman working under another woman and, uh, just learned so, so much in that instance. So my vote is get out there if you can. Um, and again, I like literally we've had 30 something interns guys. So don't tell me you're too old to do it. Um, take that three months and get in there and, and figure out what this job means. Yep. One of my interns in Georgia was a lovely woman, Susan in her forties who, you know, was an actor, loved the theater, started a family. Now her kids 20 years later are, you know, in college. And she's like, I still want to pursue this, but obviously I don't want to act. I just want to learn the other parts of it. So she was our intern, you know, along with like an 18 year old alongside, and they were both pleasant and had the same, like, just can do attitude. What I love about our industry is that for as hard as it is, it is ultimate. I mean, yes, there's a lot of ageism, but I think from an entry level perspective, there is a high bar to entry, but if you can find a crack like it kind of welcomes everybody with open arms, really. It doesn't discriminate. If you can get the work, if you have a good attitude, like you're kind of, we just want you to be there and, and amp- amplify because it's so hard, especially on the production side. I was going to say, I think you can do that on the producing and production side. I don't think, I don't think you can do it as a director. I think it's right. really hard as a director. Yeah. I obviously as an actor, I mean, they will come through this Zoom and, you know, kill both of us if we say, oh, sure, you could break into it no, at 40. God, no. I mean, that's hard. Um, I think writers can. Yeah. I actually think that that voice also is somewhat age agnostic, but absolutely is producing. Yeah. Because truthfully, the more life experience you've got under your belt, the I think the better you're going to be. The better you are. Thank you so much for doing this for the next generation. And um, I have just tremendous admiration for what you're doing. So as someone that stepped out for someone that's been doing it for 16 years straight, like I hope you take a second to look in the mirror and just pat yourself on the back. Thank you. And all the best. Ways. I look in the mirror and to see the age on my face and the strength. Wait till 50, baby. <laughs> you look great. If this is what 50 looks like, I'm in. Oh. Sign me up. <laughs> this is our angle on producers, lightning round, five questions, whatever first response that comes to mind. Okay. What's a song that teleports you to a happy place? Don't stop believing. What is the last piece of art that moved you? A book, a film, a show, etc. I went to the Van Gogh exhibit two weeks ago and got the Tash and Van Gogh, his complete works. 
and just sat and went through. And what an unbelievable, unbelievable artist. When you look at the, his entire body of work in chronological order, it kind of blows your mind. When I'm overworked, blank helps ease the stress. Massage. What is one of the most worthwhile investments you've ever made? And it doesn't have to be financial. Every time I went back down the ladder, that opportunity to go in and learn under, and that was, that was always my only qualification, right? If I'm going to go back down the ladder, I have to work for the top guy in, in whatever industry that was. But I would say the best investment has been when I haven't worried about the money and I haven't worried about the title. And I've just gone back down and learned under the smartest person I could find to learn under. Final question. And this is borrowing from Inside the Actor Studio, which is one of my favorite shows. So the question, which was inspired by the famed French journalist Bernard Caveau, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gate? So I am Catholic. I'm still a practicing Catholic. And I, the, my prayer that I say to, to God is, I hope that what the, when the world looks at me, they see you. Mm. Um, and so I hope that what God says is, you know, thanks for letting the world see me. And I'm not saying that I'm ethereal. I'm just saying that representation of the goodness, however you define, right? With whatever your religion is, or even if you're yeah. an atheist, there hopefully when the world looks at me, I'm trying to project back some sense of the goodness of the universe to them. From where I'm sitting, it looks like you're on your way. Thank you for saying that. Thank you so much. (laughs) I really appreciate this opportunity so very much. Oh my gosh, this is such a treat. Thank you so much for sharing and talking about all the things with me. I really appreciate it. And that's this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in and doing this live thing with me. If you like the show, please make sure you subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcast. Give us a five-star rating, write a review, tell a friend, tag a friend, and follow me on Instagram. I'm at Carolina Gropa. The show's at Angle on Producers. And we'll see you next week. Beijos.